The longest field goal ever attempted is 76 yards. The longest field goal ever missed? Also 76 yards. Why bring this up? Because knowing your limits matters, both when you're kicking a field goal and when you gamble. Betting more than you're comfortable with is like trying a 70-yard field goal. It probably won't go well. So set a limit when you gamble and stick to it. Want more helpful tips like this? Go to KeepItFunOhio.com for games, quizzes, and lots of ways to keep your gambling from getting out of hand. The following podcast contains explicit language. Hello all, and welcome to our pre-Oscars edition of Represent. I'm Aisha Harris, and as we prepare for what could be one of the most politically charged Oscar ceremonies in recent years, we're mixing a bit of the old with a bit of new. First, Slate Science intern Alex Barish will join me to discuss what makes A Fantastic Woman, nominated for Best Foreign Language Film, such a groundbreaking movie for trans representation. And later, we'll revisit two conversations we had with two first-time directors who are up for big awards this Sunday. Yance Ford, whose Strong Island is nominated for Best Documentary, and Greta Gerwig, whose Lady Bird is nominated for five awards, including Best Picture, Best Director, and Original Screenplay. Now, let's kick things off with a movie we have yet to discuss on Represent, and I'm really excited to do so. It's called A Fantastic Woman. A Chilean drama directed by Sebastian Lelo and written by Lelo and Gonzalo Maza, it tells the story of Marina Vidal, played by Daniela Vega, a transgender woman whose partner, Orlando, dies suddenly on the same night they've just celebrated her birthday. Orlando. Habla una amiga de Orlando. Perdón, ¿con quién hablo yo? Con Marina. Yo soy... Sí, sí sé quién es. Y se murió. ¿Se murió? Sí, recién. El médico dice que fue un aneurisma. Marina is barely able to mourn, instead being met with suspicion from law enforcement and disdain from many of Orlando's family members, including his ex-wife, who refuses to involve Marina in the funeral preparations and erases any mention of her in the obituary. Yet, even though Marina's experience of prejudice and humiliation is a very real and familiar one to those in the trans community, A Fantastic Woman is a welcome outlier among previous Oscar-nominated films featuring trans characters, as Slate intern Alex Barish wrote earlier this month. Alex is here to talk more about the film and what makes it so important. So welcome to the show, Alex. Thank you. I'm excited to be here. Yes, it's great to have you. So your piece actually in Slate is titled A Fantastic Woman Shows That Trans Stories Are Not Just Transition Stories. And you also talk about the way in which the story is framed so that we only ever see Marina as, quote, what she is and always has been, irrespective of law or anatomy, a woman. Can you talk a bit about how the movie does this and and how it varies from other representations on film? Yeah, absolutely. I, and I opened my piece with this, but I think one of the important things is that at the very outset, we see Marina as a woman. We're not like charting her journey from discovering her identity to uh, presenting as a woman. It's just at the very outset, this is who she is. And uh, because she's shown first and consistently in that way, uh, when someone shows up and challenges her identity, that immediately registers to the audience as wrong. You know, it's not concerned with convincing the audience of the character's legitimacy or asking them to evaluate how convincing the actor's transformation is. It's mm-hmm. just looking at the reality of her life. Yeah. And that differs from something like the Danish girl, obviously, in the way that that's uh, a cis man playing a trans woman 
and uh, so the audience is sort of naturally inclined to evaluate how convincing he is in doing that. And it sort of sends a message about what trans people are in the process. Right. And the Danish girl, if folks might have, I wouldn't blame you if you hadn't forgot about it. Because <laughs> honestly, uh, I remember seeing that movie and thinking, this is fine, but uh, it's so Oscar Beatty. Um, but that movie stars Eddie Redmayne. He plays, he was actually playing a real life character in like the earlier part of the 20th century, Lily Elber, uh, who is considered one of the first people on record to undergo uh, or attempt to undergo gender reassignment surgery. And that character was played by Eddie Redmayne, and he was actually nominated for that role. Uh, he didn't win that year, but he was nominated. So yeah, that that is one thing that struck me when I was watching the film, because like you said, it is very rare to see transition stories tend to be about the transition of it, whether it's the self-discovery of be, like a coming of age story where it's a young person kind of discovering uh, that they want to be like this or even something like Transparent, which we talked about on the show, where it's an older character who's finally sort of coming to terms to these things. And what I think is really fascinating is not just the fact that it's neither like this movie is neither of those stories, but also we, we're seeing everyone for the most part that she knows knows what she is already and yeah. so unless it's a police officer or you know a doctor or any stranger she encounters they all know it and one thing that um you pointed out in the piece that i also didn't really think about in the moment but you made me think was that she does also have this support system it's not just it's it it is about her dealing with the everyday hassles of of being trans and a world that still does not um, make it easy for that to be but she also has family members who are like her sister and her sister's husband i think it is who are just they're there for support and even one of the siblings of Orlando her lover is he's not yeah. evil <laughs> he's not like terrible he he doesn't fully understand it I guess and definitely is not um, warm to her in the way that he could be mm-hmm. but he also unlike her like his ex-wife Orlando's ex-wife who's planning the funeral and, and leaving her out of it he's He's more symp- He's a more sympathetic character, I think. Yeah, definitely. And I think the fact that there is that conflict, even for someone who is sort of on the, the other side of this conflict, is important and worthwhile. And it, it kind of speaks to that contrast again, because like with the Danish girl, um, so the, the real person on which that story is based had a very social and pretty happy lifestyle for, you know, decades in Paris before she decided to pursue this surgery, but after she'd started presenting as a woman. So this kind of narrative of transness as uh, something that will inherently make you isolated and miserable and alone isn't really authentic. And it's also really disheartening for, you know, trans kids who might be watching or anyone who's maybe closeted and wrestling with the possibility of coming out if the only representation that you see on screen is of someone who is alone and unhappy because of their transness then that's going to make it that bit more difficult to come out yourself so i really appreciated that in a fantastic woman she does have this support system and even like the people she works with um all right at the at the restaurant yeah like you know she's not close with those people they're not like her close friends who would be advocating for her necessarily but when uh the investigator comes and is sort of interrogating her outside of her workplace one of her uh colleagues comes out and says hey we really need you inside and then later she says like did you notice that i tried to rescue you 
and it's like this li- <laughs> it's this little tiny interaction and yeah. they're not like best friends or anything but it's just the the simple facts of having people in your corner mm-hmm. and you know not having the whole world against you that that is important and is probably more honest than the alternative yeah it it makes me think of just so many stories about people who are marginalized uh, in society. They tend to be, we, we, we tend to, usually when they finally get a chance to be on screen, it's all about the, the really sad low points. And, and it's great to, it's not great, it's like therapeutic to revel in those things and it's necessary to point out injustices. But it is also nice to see that we're kind of moving away from this. Like it, it felt somewhere in the way to me that Call Me By Your Name felt in that that movie is about a, a young man disco- like discovering his sexuality and discovering that he might also be attracted to men or only attracted to men. Who knows? It's ambiguous. But he his parents are like the, the movie suggests that maybe he has a support. He has a support system um, and he just has to find it out for himself and it's not all about it's not it's actually not about him you know f- feeling like the outside world is is going to like you know come for him in, in that way it's it's about him just being discovering a sexuality whether it's with a man or a woman yeah exactly i think that's really important and there there was an interview recently that the culture gab fest did with uh i believe the producer of call me by your name and he was saying that a lot of the uh, people who were potentially going to fund the film wanted them to kind of raise the stakes and they were like oh what if he were disowned or what if somebody died or something and it's like it just shows that there is this sort of preconceived notion of what these stories are supposed to look like and mm-hmm. how we need to ratchet up the drama and elicit uh, a, a, an emotional response from the audience but I just appreciated that in A Fantastic Woman and in Call, Call Me By Your Name it's more about empathy and about relating to those characters as opposed to pitying them. Mm. And that feels a lot more empowering and also a lot more authentic. Yeah. Another thing you point out, and I think is is really important to note here, is that in A Fantastic Woman, the character at the center is played by an actual trans woman herself. And that is a big difference between Eddie Redmayne playing Lily in The Danish Girl. It's also a big difference from, you know, Chris, Chris Sarandon, you also mentioned, who who is also based on a real life character mm-hmm. in Dog Day Afternoon playing a trans woman. And yeah, I, I just think that this movie is in a way more proof that we need more of like definitely more proof that we need more of that, especially considering knowing a little bit of the backstory of the making of the movie, which is that even though I believe the director and the writer are both um, cis gender, they definitely weaved in, they incorporated. She was involved. Daniela Daniela was involved with the actual like way the narrative played out. She took some things from her life experience, and I think that's really important. Is is that sort of inclusivity that we don't usually see in these types of movies. I mean, with The Danish Girl, I know I actually interviewed the director for that around the time the movie came out. And, you know, he did talk about talking, having trans people behind the scenes who he spoke with and and who he uh, sort of offered counsel and and advice. And Eddie Redmayne, I know, also kind of attempted to immerse himself in the world in some ways. But it's, it's very different still when you have this this difficult thing about whether gay character like straight actors should be playing gay characters whether trans uh whether cis 
actors should be playing trans characters. It's very complicated, um, but I do think this movie makes a case for why we need definitely more of that. How do you like? How do you fall? Because there are some people who would argue that you know acting is acting. Uh, and then there are other people who will say it's not so much that we have these actors playing these roles. It's just that, like, there are other trans actors who are not getting these roles. So we need more of those. Like, maybe we can mix things and have, you know, it's not always a cis person playing a trans character. Uh, where do you fall on that spectrum? Yeah, I mean, I think it's really important to have trans people involved in these roles and also in these dialogues with the writers and the directors, especially because, it's better for the way that we talk and think about trans people and it's also better for the caliber of the story itself because you're hewing closer to the the real experiences of this group. And like uh, Jen Richards, I think she was one of the earliest guests on Represent actually. And she had a she really was, yeah. she had a really useful series of tweets maybe a year ago now. I think and it was like two years. It, yeah, yeah, 2016, yeah. I guess. Yes, yeah. yeah. So and she was talking about the dangers of this disconnect between what audiences see on screen and then what they see when people come on stage to accept these awards. And like with these Oscar nominated films especially, I was just I keep thinking about this statistic from Glad, which is that eighty four percent of Americans only learn about trans people through media. Mm-hmm. So just the the importance of um reinforcing our actual lived experiences as opposed to sort of the expectations of Hollywood of what a trans person or a trans story should look like. And, you know, it, it kind of if you have a cis person if you have a cis man playing a trans woman or a cis woman playing a trans man, it, it might reinforce this idea about trans people as deceptive or delusional or, you know, um, sort of not not being authentic about who they are when in reality it's obviously the opposite. And I, I think the screenplays in particular can be pretty telling in terms of how people are thinking about trans characters. Like I, I think I mentioned in the piece that in The Danish Girl, they use male pronouns for Lily um, whenever she's in men's clothing. And in and by, that, by that, do you mean like the actual like script notes? Yeah. So, so like, like when it says... When it has like an action that she's doing, it'll mm-hmm. say he if, right. he's, if she's presenting in a certain way. Um, and like the in Dallas Buyers Club, uh, the writer Melissa Wallach calls Rayon, the trans woman in that film, who's played by Jared Leto, he all the time in interviews. Mm-hmm. And in the script, it says he and that character is misgendered constantly throughout. So just the sense that people aren't really... Uh, buying into the identities of these characters in the way that they should be and the way that that has a ripple effect if you're if you as a creator don't believe in this character's identity and sort of present them in that way to your audience then the message they're going to take home from that is that you know trans people aren't aren't really the gender that they say they are and that can be damaging right and that it's that it's something that you can easily just sort of coach yourself yeah and practice into being exactly like yeah. there's an emphasis on the the transness as the performance rather than the storyline that they are part of as what they're acting right and you pointed out uh, there is a quote from chris sarandon actually that was just <laughs> so bad from an interview he gave and this interview was given for like 40 years later after so yeah like the this interview... was in 2014 this wasn't like you know at the time which might have been maybe slightly more uh, yeah <laughs> but he he says and this this was in the la times uh i guess it was around the 40 the 40th anniversary yeah it was of like a retrospective and as you mentioned he talked about how he sat he had a gay friend and asked him his word his word not mine 
if he knew any trannies or if he like yeah. you're pl- you're clued into the tranny <laughs> world or something. And then like he invited a few trans people over and they eat spaghetti and then he asked them questions. And yeah. then that's how he prepared. Yeah. For the role. And like his questions weren't even, you know, what is your experience like as a trans person? It's like, when was the first time you wore drag? <laughs> Which is just sort of reinforcing the idea right. that trans people are just, in you drag. know, yeah, dressing up in different clothes. And isn't that exciting? Yeah. So yeah, he clearly didn't know that much about the community. And another bit of that interview that I found quite funny afterwards was the interviewer asked him if any trans people had ever come up to him to like talk to him about the role of Leon or thanked him for it or anything. And first of all, the, the trans woman's name is Lana, but that is sort of encapsulating the issue. And he's like, you know, funnily enough, nobody has come up to me, maybe because it was so taboo. And it's like, I'm not sure that's why they didn't want to talk to you about this. Yeah. But Ooh, Wow. <laughs> I, yeah, it's we've. I think we've come a long way in some ways. Just the fact that this movie exists. Yeah. Um, and I also, I also think of Tangerine, which I hoped Tangerine came out of a, a couple few years ago, uh, directed by Sean Baker, who mm-hmm. this year also f- got fairly snubbed from the Florida Project, which was one of my favorite movies of last year. Um, but Tangerine, I thought, was really great because you have, again, you have trans actors playing these roles. It wasn't about their transition. It's just like a day in the life of their, like, you know, their exploits and their their interactions and their relationships. And it was nice to see that. And I feel like those movies have quite a bit in common, in, in that sense anyway, in terms of the way they very much make these characters feel human yeah exactly it's empowering them and privileging their own voices and experiences in a way that something like the danish girl or dog day afternoon doesn't because of those kind of preconceived notions of what those experiences should look like yeah and before we go can you recommend any other films besides we've already mentioned tangerine and of course a fantastic woman but are there any other examples of this type of film where it's not about the transition it's about just the characters yeah, um, so I saw this relatively recently at Raindance in London, but I think it's slowly working its way into wider release. Uh, there's a film, Apricot Groves, which is also a foreign film, in which a trans guy, Aram, goes back to Armenia after living in America for several years to ask for his girlfriend's hand in marriage. And it really focuses on his emotional journey and his relationship with her and with his own family and with sort of the traditions of his country in a way that's really interesting and not it it doesn't examine him in a voyeuristic way the way that a lot of other films have fallen into that trap so i think that's a really good one uh and there is one film that has actually done the transition narrative quite well i think um which is a little bit older now but it's called romeos it's a german film and it's about a trans guy who moves to a new city and falls for a cisgender gay guy there and then has to sort of navigate that burgeoning relationship as well as his own transition and all of the like administrative issues that come with uh, existing in the world as a trans person. Hmm. So it's it's not like the pinnacle of artistry, but it's really true to the trans experience and the sort of subculture. Like he vlogs uh, to track the way his voice changes, which is a very specific sort of in-joke with the trans male community. Mm. And uh, honestly, it's so real at times that it's kind of like a two-hour anxiety attack for someone who is actually trans. And it's Mm -hmm. like, oh, this is too real. But uh, it doesn't stray too much into the melodrama and it's kind of a big deal because trans guys are almost invisible and a gay trans guy is like unheard of. So um, 
it filled a very specific niche that I don't think any other film has inhabited before or since. And I appreciated that. So it's worth checking out. Awesome. So we'll include links uh, to more information on both those films. And A Fantastic Woman is nominated for Best Foreign Language Film. It seems, I think most predictors have it as a front runner and yeah. it'll be a huge deal if that if that does win because we haven't seen a movie like that nominated for an Oscar uh yet so it would yeah. be great to see that and hopefully they win and and are you rooting I are you rooting for I don't want to assume you're rooting for that but <laughs> I am yeah <laughs> <laughs> awesome well thank you so much Alex it's great having you on yeah thank you with Kizik Can's free shoes motion sounds something like this Kizik helps you experience the magic of motion. With over 200 patents and easy on, easy off technology, you'll never have to touch your shoes again. There are hundreds of styles and colors, plus a squish like nothing you've ever felt. For a limited time, get a free pair of socks with your first order at kizik.com socks. Up next, we revisit Strong Island, which was one of the most moving films I saw last year. Yance Ford, who spent years as a documentary programmer for PBS, was finally able to create and release his own very personal film about the murder of his brother, William, and the family's decades-long search for justice. In 1992, William was shot and killed by a white man who worked at an auto shop during a dispute over his car repairs. William was unarmed, but a grand jury in heavily segregated Long Island, New York, declined to indict his killer. In this excerpt from the conversation I had with Yance last fall, we discussed how the film's point of view shifted throughout the creative process. I know that in an interview you gave a few years ago, you you mentioned that originally when you were making the film, you thought it was very emotionally resonant, but it felt very sort of... uh, what you see all the time. Mm -hmm. Uh, You used to work for POV, looking through submissions for documentaries for PPS. And so you felt as though it felt a little uh, by the books. Mm-hmm. What, in what way did you change your approach to the film? Like what, it, what did it look like in its original incarnation? And then what sort of steps did you take to make it mm. less um, just straightforward and more cliche? Sure, sure. Um, you know, I, I think that, you know, I, I, I'd watched thousands of films over ten years, thousands of mm. films, um, and you know, almost all of the films that I'd seen about criminal criminal justice um, were made by white filmmakers, and you know, ostensibly for white audiences. Um, and so, the first thing I did um, when I reapproached, you know, what would eventually become um, the final version of Strong Island was to reconsider the gaze, right? And it's a, and it's something that you don't even realize that you're doing consciously unless you think about it. Um, so, so, so the gaze, you know, I, I had shot the film with the camera as a stand-in for my eye, not as a surrogate for the audience. So the material was there. It was the way in which we handled the material that had to change. It was the assumption of the audience that had to change, right? So we, we, we retuned the film so that it would work on two frequencies. The frequency of um, people for whom this experience was not new, um, and for you know, for whom the film would serve as an affirmation of their you know experience, um, and and the frequency you know for people who have a difficult time believing that this kind of thing happens and have a difficult time believing that 
you know, injustice is often, um, you know, uh, a result of the way that race influences our criminal justice system. Um, I also needed, you know, to reconsider the organizing concept of the film um, because I, I had unwittingly um, sort of made a sad black woman film, right? And and I, I don't, um, you know, and I sort of woke up and I realized that because I had not allowed space for my own anger in, in you know, as a character in the film, um, that I had essentially avoided my mother's anger. Um, and, you know, when I realized that, I was also able to sort of go back to that moment when she talks about testifying in front of the grand jury, and she says that she's heard to cry. I became very angry with myself because at one point I began to cry. And... I hated that moment because I felt that, you know, they were going to say, here is another black woman who didn't do her job with her child, and now she wants us to make somebody pay. That's how I felt. I sort of remember saying, sitting there saying to myself, Yancy, she's talking directly to you. She's telling you that she hated crying, right? Mm-hmm. So you need to listen to that, right? Your mother, is talk, your mother is telling you how she wants to be portrayed. And that is almost something that we never get um, from um, black characters in films, um, you know, it, sort of historically, not with this sort of recent... Um, "Quote unquote wave um, of films. There's much, you know, the characters are, are much more fully realized, much more agency and control over the way that they are represented. Um, and it was my responsibility to go back and represent my mother in a way, the way in which she would have represented herself, and to allow the film to be um, not just a sad story, but also a, um, an angry story, um, and a story that you know we see that we say at the beginning." If you are uncomfortable with me asking these questions, you might as well get up and go, right? So it's it's you know it's the kind of film that's not that's not easy to sit through, but you know the course of the last twenty five years haven't been easy to live with, mm-hmm. right? And so the film needed to reflect that, um, and you know that's that's how you know the, sort of the reboot of the of the film happened and. Um, it's much more. Um, well, you said it had. You said it really affected you. So I'm, I'm sort of curious to know how it felt. Yeah, I mean, it's that when you say it like that, that makes a lot of sense to me because it. I mean, I always keep going back to the um, Michael Brown's mother when mm. she, after the the jury or the jury came back. Mm-hmm. Um, and there was that clip of her just like so angry. Mm-hmm. And I remember that being so powerful because we're so used to these black families having to be very like mm-hmm. composed and reserved and just be dignified in, in their mm-hmm. in their mourning. And seeing her like get so angry felt like very visceral and very like it felt like we had made I mean, I hate to say progress in in this sort of uh 
portrayal of, yeah. of families because like obviously we don't want this to keep happening but like it felt very like a release and like it was okay for her to like let that out absolutely um and i see that also in the film and i i, I also thought it was really interesting for you to even were you always going to be yourself in the movie because no yeah when i first started i mean i was i i think i was fooling myself i had created this grand illusion that i was never going to be on screen yeah um and then if i was going to be on screen that i would always be playing my brother mm. um because there are some elements of performance um yeah the fi- one of the final shots yeah one of the final shots yeah. it's actually um you know spoiler that's actually me on the ground I, I um, had a feeling. I was like, I wonder if that's that's him. Yeah, yeah, that's, yeah. That, that's me. Um, and you know, and so I did the director's trick and and sort of saying, okay, well, let's just let's shoot this, but we're only going to use the audio, right? Mm-hmm. But it was it was really obvious after a certain point, even though it took me, you know, a long time to admit it that these these interviews um, needed to be in the film in in, in in a much greater way than they had been. You can find the rest of that conversation in episode 62, and you can watch Strong Island on Netflix now. Another one of my favorite movies from last year was Lady Bird, which stars Shersa Ronan as a precocious Sacramento teen who's desperate to escape her hometown and move to the East Coast for college. There are a ton of meaningful, fleshed-out relationships to be found here, but the most affecting is the one Lady Bird shares with her mother, played by Laurie Metcalf. In this conversation I had with Greta back in November, we talk about the intense dynamic between the characters and portraying the lives of people who don't often take center stage on screen. I'm really interested in how people live every everyday lives and, and the art that is in those lives, even if they are not quote-unquote artists, mm-hmm. and um, particularly middle-class lives and just people with jobs and careers that are uh, don't don't tend to get movies about them like nurses or mm-hmm. you know just people and I, I remember reading something by Mike Lee the British filmmaker who he he has a particular way that he works with his actors where he he does these extensive rehearsal process like improv rehearsals and he has an idea of who the characters are and he has the actors improv with each other and it takes months and then he goes away and writes a script from the improv and then they come back together and then he has the script that he gives them but it's all born out of these characters that he's created and one of the requirements I talked to an actor who who worked with him and she said I was meant to bring in three different characters uh either of people I knew or things that I had made up and um, the only requirement was that they not have any job in the arts mm-hmm. <laughs> and um, when you look at his movies they they they, they don't mm-hmm. um, and I think he's had a kind of rigorous uh, commitment to that I mean that's not totally true as I'm saying that I'm thinking of there's uh, Topsy Turvy and there's Mr. Turner which are both oh, about artists right yeah but but when you think of like uh, you know, Happy Go Lucky or mm-hmm. Vera Drake or Another Year or Naked. Um, it's a variety of different kinds of people, but they have different jobs. And different yeah. jobs are interesting. <laughs> I, yeah, I totally. 
especially with the character, Laurie Metcalf's character as the mother, mm-hmm. Marion, um, you know, we do get a glimpse. We, I think all the characters, even if they might be side characters, mm-hmm. they we still get a glimpse of like their lives and their inner selves. Yeah. And, you know, there's a scene where she's you see her in her work mm-hmm. and she's mm-hmm. interacting with actually yeah. one of um, Lady Bird's teachers. Yeah. And I, I just really you could see that despite her always being like always butting heads with her daughter yeah. um, and sometimes being very acerbic and, and not as warm as one would maybe want their mother to be mm-hmm. um she still in her job can be very oh, gentle yeah. and caring yeah. and and there are moments she can be like that with ladybird but she's not as yeah. necessarily forthcoming <laughs> right. as you would expect right no there's a, there's a couple moments with uh, marion where she you see her to be actually this incredibly warm people person that people gravitate towards and like and even in the first moment where she's she's signing out and she's walking with her coworker Luis and he says you know and she says thank god you were there you know and then she gives him this gift of um, this little pink dress for his daughter and you're like oh she's really cued in to the lives of people around her and and I I mean I'm in particular with a relationship between Lady Bird and her mother I was interested in creating something where they couldn't show that affection to each other even though they were capable of doing it to other people Mm -hmm. so or or even doing it while the other one's conscious. Like like when Marion fixes the dress for Ladybird and hangs it up silently. And uh, the expression on Mar- Marion, played by Laurie Metcalf's face, always really gets me because it's these ways that we l- love each other and can't figure out to how exactly how to show it to someone and how easy that can be to do with co-workers, but how hard it can be to do with family. Yeah, it's like the closer you are to someone, the more... You want to nag them or push yeah. them away. Yeah. You, just, you don't always mean it, but like that's just the way it comes out. Totally. And also just, I mean, being a mother of a teenage girl who's about to go off into the world, I, I completely empathize with the feeling of, have I done my job well enough? Is this person ready for the world? Mm-hmm. Or is she just a total mess? And have I failed as a parent? Yeah. And, and I think that's... <sighs> That's a very understandable place to be as a mother. Mm-hmm. I mean, you yourself are not a mother, but like, how did you tap mm-hmm. into that in terms of, do you, did you recall what it was like to like be a young teenage girl? And mm-hmm. what, like, were you kind of looking back at it from the perspective of what your mother might have been or what other parents might have been around yeah. you? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, well, I, I've always been pretty good at or or at least wanted to be good at putting myself in uh, another person's position uh, that that I'd always I'd always think about what it would be to occupy somebody else's life and that I mean when I was young it was just riding my bike around my neighborhood and pretending to be the queen of England (laughs) (laughs) but some version of like what would that actually feel like Mm -hmm. Um, and I think I as much as I clashed with my mother when I was a teenager I always had a sense of why she was doing what she was doing. And also now I'm in my 30s and I have a lot of friends who have kids and I've been around them and and they will say things to me like I sometimes I say things that I cannot believe is coming out of my mouth Mm -hmm. or that you'll say something that you've heard your parents say and now suddenly you're saying it and you're like, oh my God, I have, I've done it. (laughs) I have done it and I understand it. Yeah. And, um, 
I, I spent, I spent, I have nieces and nephews. My brother and my sister both have kids. And, um, you know, just spent, after spending a full day with them. And then um, I, I, I remember I went to sleep that night and I, I couldn't remember what I dreamed, but I woke up with this, I woke up with this sentence in my head, which was, oh my God, I understand the voice. And I was like, wow, what do I mean? I understand the voice. And then I was thinking about it and I, I, I remember when I was little, I hated when, when my mom and I would be in it or fighting and she'd pick up the phone and all of a sudden her voice would be really happy and mm. she'd be like, she'd be like hello? Oh, Karen, it's so great that you called. And I'd be like, oh, my mom just changed her voice for Karen. <laughs> but then if you spend all day with little kids and then your friend calls, you're so happy. So much relief. <laughs> you're yeah. so happy. You're like, oh, my God, it's an adult. I can talk to an adult. <laughs> yeah. And I was like, oh, I get the voice. Oh, yeah. the voice is totally understandable. Yeah. And like thinking about, you know, being with little kids and what that meant all day and just just looking for any any release and um yeah, so I, I I don't know. It was a combination of seeing that in my friends, experiencing it myself, and then always, I always sort of had an instinct to try to understand it, even if it was just selfishly for acting. Yeah. <laughs> Lady Bird is available to stream on Amazon, and you can listen to the rest of my chat with Greta via episode 70. And that's all we've got for today. Represent is produced by the lovely, awesome Verilyn Williams. Our excellent social media assistant is Marissa Martinelli. And our intro-outro music is performed by the sweet San Francisco funk soul band Midtown Social. And on Monday, look out for our recap episode of Sunday's Oscars. We'll be talking about everything from the politics to the winners and the I'm just happy to be there folks. And so that way, if you missed it, and to some extent I don't blame you because the Oscars are so friggin' long, (laughs) you will know everything that you missed. And so, until then, 